Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. It's good to be back. <laughs> um, me, me and Chloe, every time we talk about Ecclesia, uh, we, we still say um, us and we. And so um, um, we very much feel at home uh, here. Um, it, is, it is a real pleasure to be back to, to be with you guys and to fellowship with you guys. Um, and uh, I pray today will be a real blessing to you. Um, <clears throat> where. We're going to continue on in our series uh, in Malachi. Uh, today, I've got Malachi 2, uh, verses 10 to 16. Uh, and before I open the text... Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before I read the text, um, I'm not sure if you've ever watched a Tyler Perry film um, <laughs> or, or any family film where there's a family reunion, a funeral, perhaps a barbecue... Uh, anywhere where the family gets together. Uh, but usually the, the, the film starts off quite nicely, and it's a bit light, and there's jokes, and there's games, and, you know, people are kind of greeting each other, and it's all happy, it's all happy-dappy. Uh, and it seems like it's a functioning family, right? But it doesn't take too long before the real tension and the fractured nature of the family uh, starts to reveal itself. Uh, one person makes... Uh, one comment, and it brings up a whole history of, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the past trouble and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, and the fractured nature of the family isn't so much like a large group effort, uh, because not necessarily everyone is involved in the drama, but the actions of certain family members in their own private lives, uh, outside of, you know, the, the event, outside of the funeral, outside of the barbecue or the family reunion, are like an individual thread that, if you pull on it, would, would unravel the organic unity of the family. And the unity of the family is in question uh, until some kind of intervention takes place. And so I don't know if you've ever seen um, Medea's Family Reunion, where, <laughs> where I just basically described the whole film, and then at the end, uh, I think Cicely Tyson uh, comes and gives a big speech and intervenes um, to, to, to kind of bring the family back together. Uh, but it just goes to show that individual acts of unfaithfulness have the power to create that widespread disunity. Uh, and this may be something like what Judah is going through in Malachi's time. Uh, since returning from exile, uh, many hopes and dreams of a new Jerusalem where there's a banging new temple and, you know, God deals with his enemies and the wolf is playing with the lamb, uh, they, they don't happen. Those dreams don't come true. Uh, and the reality is actually that Israel, or Judah specifically, is in economic uh, hard times, uh, a bit like what we are. They, they've got a serious cost of living crisis. Uh, they're under foreign rulers, and so they're still ruled by, by, by the enemies of God, as it were. And inwardly, they are still as corrupt as they were before they were in exile. And so it doesn't seem that much has changed. And this creates a people who are deflated, uh, and spiritually, they just don't care. Uh, they no longer believe that God is with them or that God cares about them. And I think it's that state of mind uh, that leads them to no longer be dedicated to God uh, and, no, and, and causes them to no longer be dedicated to their nation or to each other. Um, and 
in turn, they only have loyalty to themselves. Uh, if you're not loyal to God or to your nation or to your brother, you will only be loyal to yourself. And we've seen that in the last two weeks. Uh, the, you, know, they, the, the, you know, the people will no longer bring um, acceptable sacrifices in worship. Uh, the priests are corrupt and they lead the people. Um, and here, in our text today, Malachi 2, um, a heart of unfaithfulness spreads from within the home into the wider society. Uh, what happens in the home, even though it's the individual homes, in individual communities, acts like that thread that threatens to unravel the organic unity of God's covenant people. Uh, and so Malachi confronts them in this text about their unfaithfulness to one another. Um, and their unfaithfulness shows up in them being uh, a divided family. It shows up in profane marriage or profane intermarriage. Uh, and it shows up in broken homes by means of divorce. Uh, and so Malachi encourages them and he encourages us toward a committed faithfulness to each other as God's people, as God's family. Uh, and so uh, if you read the text with me, uh, Malachi 2, 10 to 16, and I'm going to read uh, and I'm going to pray that God would help us. Uh, I'm reading in the, in, in the NIV. Um, I know you like ESV, but I'm reading NIV today. So um, please follow along if you can. So it says, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them. Uh, with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. I praise the Lord for his word. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, help us as we look at your word. Would your word transform us and water our hearts? Uh, help us to understand your word rightly, um, that we may uh, look upon you um, and that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, may none of 
your words return void. Um, and would you work in each and every one of our hearts to love you more, uh, to trust you more, uh, and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, uh, in verse 10, uh, the, the text moves from God addressing the people, of Mal- um, the people to Malachi addressing the people himself. And he does so using family terms, right? He says, do we not all have one father? Um, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors uh, by being unfaithful to one another? And the one another there is, is literally to your brothers. Uh, so he's using family language because that's what God's, God's covenant people are to be. They're to be a family, right? They're to be a family that are united under one God, one father to whom they owe all their existence, Uh, Not only in being created by God, but in redemption, in being saved by God. Um, When God first sends Moses to Pharaoh to let his people go, the first words he tells Moses to say to Pharaoh are, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And Malachi reminds them of that, that they share one God, one father, so they ought to be one people. But many among them are being unfaithful to one another. That is, uh, but when I say unfaithful, they, they, they are showing no loyalty to one another, no commitment to each other. And they're doing this by breaking the covenant God made with them when he first made them his own people and saved them from slavery in Egypt. And I suspect that they're doing this Ultimately, because they have no honor for God, right? Malachi 1 verse 6 says, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If there is no true honor for God, or if they are not faithful to God who made them, then they will not be faithful to his children. And we can kind of get a sense of this in, 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 in the first two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments are in the correct order, right? Because we're used to hearing that the second greatest commandment is the golden rule. Um, you know, loving and treating others as you would want to be loved and treated. Uh, but it's not the golden rule. Because it's the second greatest commandment. Uh, It's the silver rule, if you'd like. The true golden rule is loving God, right? It's loving God. Loving God is the starting place for what it means to love your neighbor. Uh, Because your neighbor is made in the image of God. And so if you don't love God, if you don't love, then you're not going to love his image. Without God, there is no definable good to do to your neighbor, Without God, there is no true meaning of the word love with which to love your neighbor. Yet the love of God and the love of neighbor are not mutually exclusive uh, because loving God actually does include loving your neighbor. For example, the first, um, um, the the Ten Commandments, the first five are God-oriented commands and the next five are man-oriented commands. And so the love of God is both vertical and horizontal toward God vertical, and toward man, horizontal. And so that's how it's possible for people to be unfaithful to each other horizontally 
by breaking their covenant with God vertically. And that is because he who is false to God will not be true to his fellow human brothers. So that's a problem for, for them then, but it can also be a problem for us now. Um, if, if we, like those in Malachi's day, are spiritually uninterested and see all this faith stuff ultimately as unimportant, uh, we will forget whose we are, we will forget who we are, and we will forget what we are a part of, right? We will forget whose we are, that God is truly our Father. We will forget who we are, that we are a child of God, and we will forget that we are part of something that is bigger than us. That we are a child of God, but there is more than one, there's more than one child. We're not an only child. We are not individual silos and islands, but we are part of a real interconnected family, the family of God with Christ's blood that runs through our veins. And so this sense of spiritual apathy leads to a culture of unfaithfulness to others, uh, which leads to a divided family in verse 10. And Malachi points out two ways, or two specific ways, that their unfaithfulness is showing up in the community. And the first is profane marriage, or profane intermarriage. This is uh, in verse 11 and 12. And so the, the, you know, the men of Israel have been unfaithful to each other and to God's covenant by taking foreign, non-Jewish, idol-worshipping wives for themselves uh, and possibly are leaving their wives to marry those foreign women. And Malachi calls this a detestable thing, uh, or in the ESV, he calls it an abomination. Uh, now, I want to stop at the word abomination. Uh, it's not a word that we hear very much today, but an abomination is something that is detestable, right? It's immoral, it's contrary to and perverts God's good creation and God's intention for his people. And there is so much going on today that is not only an abomination, but is accepted and tolerated and celebrated in the name of personal individual freedom, right? The Bible calls homosexual practice an abomination. Pornography is an abomination. Our sexually free culture is an abomination. Abortion, which is the, the sacrificing of children, is an abomination. Yet these things not only happen before our eyes, but they are protested for. They are taught that they are okay to our children in schools. They are incorporated in our communities and they are called good things, which in itself is an abomination. To call what is good evil and evil good is an abomination. And I don't say that to offend, uh, but I think that needs to be said. We should call things for what they are. And we should not be so easily persuaded uh, by the surrounding culture that uh, these things are generally okay. And a word like abomination should, I hope, I hope, sober us up to the fact that these things are an abomination. 
So the reason that intermarriage here is, is significant um, is because intermarriage in this way deeply affects the spiritual and social unity of God's people. The intermarriage here is not wrong for racial or ethnic reasons uh, because God's people have actually always been a multi-ethnic people. Uh, Joseph's, Joseph's wife was an Egyptian, an Egyptian you know, queen, as you might say. Uh, Moses, uh, um, Moses married Zipporah, who was from Cush. Again, for her younger people, that's, you know, Nubian queen. <laughs> um, Boaz marries Ruth. Uh, Ruth is not an Israelite, uh, but she's from Moab, which was outside the people of God. And so evidently, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you could say, jungle fever in the Bible. <laughs> but in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, foreigners are present. And so intermarriage is not, is not condemned on ethnic racial grounds, right? But the fundamental issue throughout the Bible is, is that intermarriage with foreign people who worship their own gods will pull the nation away from their true God and lead them into sin. In the law of Moses, uh, time and time again, it, it says, don't do it, just continuously. Um, and there's a similar attitude toward interfaith marriage. Uh, nearer to Malachi's context in Nehemiah 13, 23 to 27, uh, which says, Moreover, in the days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Am Ammon, and Moab, which are places outside of uh, Judah and Israel. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of them, um, so, so some of the men, and pulled out their hair. It's very, very, um, very drastic. <laughs> I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And this is the key, which is why he's you know, slapping people and, <laughs> and pulling out their hair. He says, was it not because of marriages like this, or that these, that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was, no, there was no God like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful, which is very similar to the word that we're thinking about today, unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. And so there are real problems with this kind of intermarriage here in Malachi. It violates the sanctuary the Lord loves um, it's possible that, the, that, that, that intermarriage was happening among both the general people and among the priests who are instructed clearly in Deuteronomy 7 not to take foreign wives for themselves. Uh, the priests who are to have lives committed to the one true God are also committing themselves to those who are committed to false gods. And this could mean when it says um, it desecrates the, the, the sanctuary that the Lord loves, that their foreign wives were allowed to bring their idol practices into the temple, which is an abomination. You know, it, it would be like if, 
um, all the elders uh, had married Muslims, uh, Muslims who deny that Jesus is Lord, uh, Muslims who denied um, Jesus week in and week out that was preached from the pulpit um, and set up their prayer mats while we were having service. You think, what kind of church is that? I'm not sure, you know, you wouldn't be sure what God they worship. The second issue is that if God's people have one God and Father, and they unite themselves to people who worship other gods, this undermines the whole unity of the community because there will no longer be one God and Father, but many gods and many fathers. Who are you supposed to listen to? These interfaith interfaith unions also create an individual inattention that grinds away at your conscience and at your commitment to God. It makes it difficult to be a wholehearted follower of God if the person that you are uh, joining yourself to does not follow God. And interfaith unions prevent the raising of godly offspring that God seeks in verse 15. Uh, You know, how difficult would it be to raise a child who loves the Lord when one of his or her parents, uh, who has a a God-given influence over them, uh, rejects God? So interfaith marriages or interfaith unions are unfaithful because they destroy the spiritual and social cohesion of God's people. It breaks up the family, literally. In verse, in verse 12, Malachi says, May the Lord remove anyone who thinks to do this from being part of the nation. It's a serious thing for them, and again, it's a serious thing for us as well. You know, you often hear it said, um, you know, what does it matter, the person or the religion of the person I, I love or the religion of the person I marry? Or, you know, you might hear, uh, you know, temptation from, from Christian singles who, who want to be married but are losing hope and begin to settle for non-Christians. But that really matters, right? John Piper uh, on this text says, When we claim to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and then willfully choose to unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most intimate personal union on earth, We profane the holiness of God. We act as though our emotional drive for human intimacy is more important than affirming the preciousness of God's holiness and nearness. These interfaith marriages uh, don't just have the, the, the outward effect, but in themselves, interfaith unions are disunited Because the most important thing about either of you, namely what you believe about God, does not match up. And so your relationship can can never be truly uh, united. Um, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 to 18 isn't in a marriage context. uh, But I'd argue that it still has applications here. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what, does, or what, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there bef- between the temple of God and idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. Again, there's God and Father from verse 10 uh, in our text. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so unfaithfulness uh, shows itself or has shown itself in a divided family and a profane marriage. And we move on to the, the, the next specific way that unfaithfulness shows up in, in, in God's people, and that is in divorce, which is obviously a very sensitive you know, subject. Um, but unfaithfulness leads to a broken home. Verse 13 to 15, <clears throat> or 16, uh, the men of Judah realized that God was not accepting or pleased with their offerings, even though they gave them with kind of loud displays of emotions in order to try and earn God's favor, in order to try and, you know, turn God's heart. Um, in Ghanaian culture, uh, uh, I don't know if this, this is funny or not, but um, uh, at certain funerals or, or kind of in certain cultures, um, you, you have what's called a professional mourner um, who, uh, if people aren't mourning enough in, <laughs> at the funeral, you have someone who's kind of melodramatic and will kind of bellow out cries to try and get other people to, be, uh, um, to also be emotional. And, and, and I guess there's a similar sense here where the men of Israel, because they knew that God wasn't hearing their cries, um, would, I guess would be professional mourners uh, to earn God's favor. But God is not convinced by their, their offerings or their emotions because though they come to worship him, uh, though they come with weeping, uh, they're divorcing their wives. Their wives are weeping truly. And so God does not accept their offerings. And again, this may be because they're leaving their wives for foreign wives or they are divorcing them because of a growing dislike or you know, incompatibility and just want to end their marriages. And so for them, divorce became a way of life. You know, if you're tired of your wife, you can send her away. And Malachi confronts them on it, and he does so by highlighting the deep significance of marriage that should stop divorce from being so easy, or, or even possible sometimes. And the deep significance that Malachi points out is that marriage is a covenant. Again, many people these days, uh, especially if they've been together for a while, if they ask them, oh, when are you getting married? Uh, they might say something like, I don't need to get married. It's just a piece of paper. We don't need a piece of paper to show our love, as it were. And that looks at marriage as if it's a formal contract. Uh, but marriage is not a formal law contract, though it, should, uh, uh, though it should be and it is recognized by the law. But in its truest essence, marriage is a covenant, right? And so, so there, you know, there are practical differences between a covenant and a contract. Uh, one is that contracts are not necessarily moral agreements. Uh, so, for example, if you take out a tenancy agreement or a contract or a job contract, um, they are not fundamentally in and of themselves moral. Uh, you start renting somewhere or you start working somewhere, 
uh, you intend to work there for a year or live there for a year, and six months in, uh, your plans change, and so you end the contract. Uh, there's nothing kind of fundamentally moral about that. It's not a moral issue. Whereas, with a marriage covenant, uh, in, in its essence, it is moral, right? Because there are only two ways, despite what the world might say, there are only two ways to get out of a marriage, and that is by death or by committing a grave sin. The second thing, or, or the second practical uh, difference between contracts and, and covenants is that uh, the government authority cannot penetrate or dissolve marital love and commitment like it can intervene with a contract. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says, the, the institution of the family, which is based on marriage, is older than the law. It stands outside of the state. And so in most normal cases of family joys and sorrows, uh, the state has no mode of entry. Okay, it's like that's a bit low. It's a bit low in there. <laughs> it's all right. If you, it'll, be, it'll be fine. It's fine. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Uh, and the third and the most important difference between covenants, thank you, Mikey, and contracts uh, is the involvement of God Almighty, right? Verse 14, the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. When it says that God is witness, it's not just saying that he was there on the day and watched it. Uh, rather, it's more that he is the guarantor of your marriage. He is the one who is responsible for making it happen, and he is the party who holds it together. Matthew 9, 16 says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder, or let no man separate, because God is the one who put marriage together. And so the fundamental difference between contracts and covenants is that God is involved. It's God's holy ordinance, and it's his picture of his covenant here, here with Israel. The distinctive thing about a marriage covenant as well is that through it, God creates true oneness. You know, a contract functions between two parties who have overlapping interests, and when they sign the contract, they remain two different parties. But in marriage, God takes the two and makes them one. Again, verse 14, um, Malachi says, she is your partner. The wife of you, your youth is your partner. Uh, the, the ESV renders it your companion. Uh, but the original word there is, is an architectural word that is more like uh, a seam or a joint in a building. Um, and if that se seam or joint is removed then the building can no longer stand. And that is what the wife is to her husband, and the husband is to his wife. They, they stand or fall together because they are one. Again, verse 15, the, the Hebrew is, is, is a bit obscure and difficult, but that same sense of oneness is also there. He says, has not the one God made you? And he asks, what does the one God seek? Uh, from their oneness, he seeks that they produce godly children. And that only happens when they become one. And so marriage as such is 
a distinct oneness, so much so that the, 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 the true spiritual picture of divorce isn't or wouldn't be an image of two people kind of you know, walking away from each other, uh, but it's, it's, it's actually more like the image of amputation, um, the, the, the loss of a limb, as it were, the loss of, of a vital limb or organ. That is what divorce is more like. And that's why in verse 16 it says, uh, in some translations, that God hates divorce because divorce destroys and separates the one flesh union that God established in marriage. And he doesn't hate it spiritually, um, you know, like simply because it's a spiritual uh, problem, but it's also, it's also a social problem. Uh, especially in that cultural context. So when, when, a, when a husband divorced his wife, um, verse 16 calls it a violence to his wife because she no longer received the provision and protection of her husband. Um, divorce took away the, the dignity and protection and it fractured the social order of the community from the inside out. And this is the only time in verse 16 that Malachi actually quotes the Lord as speaking uh, to say that he who hates and divorces his wife is like one who does violence to her, like violence to the one he should protect. So what can we draw from this, um, from a broken home, as it were? Uh, I want to highlight two things that we can draw from that. The first uh, is that we need a healthy and biblical view of marriage and divorce. Marriage is normative. It is necessary for a society to continue and to be stable. That doesn't mean that everyone will marry, or if you're unmarried, you're some kind of second-class citizen. I think that's a very wrong idea. It's an unbiblical idea. Uh, but marriage is God's grace to stabilize families, which stabilizes communities, which stabilizes societies. And the breakup or the distortion of marriage and the family is a threat to society. The Lord Jesus shows that there's only one kind of marriage between one man and one woman, and no other marriage exists or can exist. A marriage cannot be redefined by people's opinions or desires or even by the law, whether ecclesial or, or governmental, because it's an ordinance that is created by God. It's a covenant before which God is, is witness. It's a picture of his covenant with Israel. And in the new covenant, it's a picture of Christ and the church. And so marriage, despite you know, the wider culture cannot be adapted. It cannot be redefined because there's only one definer of marriage. And so we should have a high view of it. We should also not adopt the wider culture's view on, uh, uh, on marriage or its view on divorce. Like Judah did in Malachi's day, divorce is it's not to be taken lightly. You know, earlier this year, you know, a law passed um, for no-fault divorce, which made divorce easier. Um, people these days celebrate divorce by having divorce parties 
or divorce ceremonies where they literally undo their marriage vows. Uh, we hear of you know, celebrities who divorce simply because they, 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 they grew apart, yet somehow remain best friends. But God hates divorce. He does not delight in it. It has real and painful uh, individual and social spiritual consequences. And that's not to say that marriage is easy, but it's to say that God hates divorce. He hates the breakdown of the family. Again, it damages the individual couple and the society, um, especially children. It has such a negative impact on children. Um, uh, you know, studies show that children are, are, are most likely to suffer emotional, social, and financial distress if raised apart from their own parents, their own married parents, right? Studies show that boys raised in a single-parent household are more than twice as likely to be incarcerated compared with boys raised in an intact married home. Uh, and that's even looking at differences in, per, in, in parental income, in education, in race, um, and in ethnicity. And so even, the, even though the culture puts, you know, personal freedom over other factors, divorce is a serious thing. And speaking of children, the, the second thing I want to highlight uh, in verse 15 is, what does God seek from marriage? Uh, if you could help me out. I don't know if anyone's got scripture. What does God seek from marriage? Amen. Godly offspring. Uh, and so I want to be sensitive to, you know, those who are struggling with, you know, with fertility. Uh, but marriage normatively is to be the seedbed to raise godly offspring. And sometimes we forget that word in front of offspring, godly offspring, right? Parents are to disciple their children, to raise them in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 4, to teach them to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to fear him, Deuteronomy 6. There is an active role that parents play in teaching their children to love the Lord, not to force them, but to intentionally teach and disciple their children to love the Lord. Because children will not simply drift into Christ, as it were, like they just walk into a lamppost one day, uh, but they have to be guided into Christ. Parents have to prioritize evangelizing their own children. Again, in our day, people might call that indoctrination, people's favorite word. Um, yeah, brainwashing. Uh, but fundamentally, someone is always teaching your, your child, someone is always indoctrinating your child. Uh, Richard Baxter said, religious orientation is not it's, not, it's often not acknowledged in our day, yet God's creatures cannot escape this fundamental truth of their nature. They may worship false gods, or they may worship the true God, but they will worship someone or something. And so the question is not whether your child is indoctrinated or not, but the question is what are they being indoctrinated with, right? Because no one is neutral. The education system is not neutral. Uh, people's religious views do um, guide 
their sense of education. And so the Great Commission to make disciples does not just apply to out there, uh, but parents, it applies to the home, which is why so much of the New Testament includes applications for families, uh, because the church is made up of families, and parents are to evangelize their children. And so I encourage parents that uh, childcare culture cannot produce godly offspring. The schools cannot produce godly offspring. The internet, social media cannot produce godly offspring. The TV, after school clubs, uh, child care professionals, especially in our day of following the science and following psychology, they cannot produce godly offspring. They cannot replace the role that God has placed you as parents in to disciple your children. And sometimes that is at the expense of living a certain economic life because that's our priority as parents. And so unfaithfulness is a family affair, right? And it leads to a divided family, verse 10, profane marriage, verse 11 and 12, and a broken home, verses 13 to 16. Again, how might that apply to us? The text ends in verse 16 with, be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Um, when I was younger, uh, I lived in Ghana when I was uh, about three, about between three and four, and uh, we, um, everyone in Ghana has a kind of a guard dog um, because of armed robbers and so on and so forth, and uh, our next door neighbor had a dog called Foxy. I've, I've got no clue why you would call a dog a fox, um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, after a while, uh, Foxy, we, uh, it turns out it was Foxy with an eye because she had puppies, and um, Ray and I would, would actually go and, and kind of climb over our neighbor's fence and play with the puppies whenever Foxy would be away from her puppies, and, um, but we'd have to keep watch because Foxy would come and chase us away. Uh, in order to protect or guard her children, right? And in the same way, uh, as me and Raymond had to keep watch, and as Foxy herself would run back and guard her children, we are to guard and protect ourselves from being unfaithful. God desires that we be a faithful People, not an unfaithful or faithless people, but a faithful people. And so just as unfaithfulness is a family affair, the opposite is also true. Faithfulness is a family affair. But instead of divided families, faithfulness leads to a united family. Instead of profane marriage and broken homes, faithfulness leads to godly marriage and flourishing homes. And so for us, the first implication I really want to impress upon us is that faithfulness to one another as God's family, being loyal to, caring for 
being truthful to one another, watching out for one another, being devoted to one another, prioritizing each other and our fellowship. And the foundation of that kind of faithfulness does not consist merely in the, in, in, you know, in the doing, uh, because that would just make Christianity a club, right? It's just a, you know, something you subscribe to. But rather, faithfulness is motivated by the knowing and recognizing that we all have one God and one Father. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. We share one God and Father who unites us. He created us and we exist for him, not ourselves. We live no longer lives for, for self-seeking and for our own interests, but ultimately to the honor of God through Christ. We come to the one Father who loves us and who has restored our relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We all have one Father who loves us, who accepts us, and he sends his spirit to bear witness with our spirit to set it in our minds that we are his children and that we are dear to him and that he holds us in the palm of his hand as you might hold a newborn baby and he looks upon us with delight because of Jesus Christ. And so vertically, that's the vertical aspect of our faith, that we have one God and Father for whom we live. Yet Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 says, says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the horizontal aspect of our commitment to God, which is faithfulness to one another, faithfulness to unity with one another. And why should we be faithful to one another? Verse 4, there is one body with Christ as the head. There is one Spirit who bears witness that we are all God's children and draws us into unity together, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know, when we're baptized into Christ, uh, many people you know, like to say, you know, my, my, my faith is personal. I don't need the church. Um, I have Jesus. I don't need the church. But when we're baptized, we're not only united to Christ, but we're also united to those who are united to Christ also. And finally, we're united in one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so in our faithfulness to God, our Father, we are to be faithful to his children. And that faithfulness extends to our personal relationships, 
uh, and because of our text specifically, our romantic relationships. Uh, first, to singles who are looking for spouses. Uh, from this text, I would encourage you to set your mind against joining yourself in most holy intimacy to non-believers. For women, a non-believing husband uh, will not and cannot lead you in Christ-like leadership, for he does not know Christ. For men, a non-believing wife will not follow and submit to you in the way required by God in marriage, because she does not know Christ. And so guard yourselves from that. Secondly, in marriage, uh, we should hate divorce because God hates divorce. And so if you're a married couple, continue on in your covenant commitment to your spouse as you promised when you married. Uh, be faithful, be true to your word, and guard your marriage. You know, for husbands, uh, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Uh, she is your companion and God has made you inseparably one. Remain faithful to that oneness, protecting and guarding your wives themselves, as well as guarding yourself by the Holy Spirit from that which threatens to break up your oneness, namely adultery, pornography, anger, control, quarreling. You know, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, like the men of Israel in verse uh, 13. They're, they're, they're weeping at the Lord's altar, went unheard, because their wives were the ones who were truly weeping. Wives, this text doesn't address you as much, uh, but also be faithful to your husbands, guarding your home from anything that threatens your oneness. And we must also be faithful to our children, raising them as godly offspring. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer well, you know, once said, in a marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations. Children are a heritage of the Lord, Psalm 127, verse 3, and they should be acknowledged as such. It is from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that parents should lead them. Parents, therefore, have divine authority in respect of their children. Again, the schools, the nurseries, childcare professionals do not have that divine authority. And so, my brothers and sisters, let us not be unfaithful to one another, but let us remember that even if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is, it's impossible for him to be disloyal to us, for he promises to never leave us nor forsake us, and he who promised is faithful. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Our Lord and Father, Thank you that you are our one God and Father, and that we are united because we have one God and Father. Would you bring home to our hearts that we are your children, 
your children whom you love and accept. Your children for whom you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, to die in our place and to bring us into the family of God. Help us to be a unified family. Help us to be a family that is devoted to one another, bearing each other's burdens, uh, faithful to each other. Keep us, Lord, from interfaith marriages that will destroy the unity, uh, not only in those marriages, but in the wider community of faith. And keep us, Lord, from divorce. To, to those who have suffered from divorce, I pray for your restoration and your help for them. Uh, and I pray that you would help us in our marriages to be one and to set it in our minds <clears throat> to raise godly offspring. Let us not leave that up to schools or to nurseries or to childcare professionals or TV or the internet or social media. Uh, but would you, and would you energize us as parents by the work of your Holy Spirit to raise godly offspring, not to force them, not to you know, yeah, force them to be godly offspring, but that in our commitment to loving them and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, you would honor that and you would draw them to yourself. And so help us, Lord, to be that unified family. To know that we are not just individual silos, but we are um, attached to, interconnected to one another. And so help us to do this by your Holy Spirit. Uh, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.